What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Breaking the gray. This is the Kinetic War podcast series, as seen by war correspondent and journalist David Wood and hosted by Paul Wood. The hope of the world is that wisdom can arrest conflict between brothers. I believe that war is a deadly harvest of arrogant and unreasoning minds. Welcome to Episode 7 of Kinetic Warfare. Uh, This episode is titled, My Son is Missing. I'm your host, Paul Wood, in conversation with my very distinguished guest and the subject of our podcast series, David Wood. Hello, David. Hi, Paul. David is a Pulitzer Prize-winning war correspondent, journalist, and author. And today, he's going to be speaking to our subject, which is the human cost of war. And these are really important stories. We need to hear these stories and they often get lost in the, in the just logistics and strategies of warfare. These are the, the really personal emotional stories. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are over, thankfully, but more than 53,000 Americans have come home wounded in combat. And for many of them, life is radically changed and their struggle to adapt to that change continues. Uh, David will be covering a new kind of the, the new kind of battle wounds of recent wars and how medics respond to those wounds, the role of family and loved ones as caretaker of the wounded, and their challenges in adapting to and, and learning that role. And then finally, the sacrifices of men and women for wars that fail to have a clean end. And in prior episodes, we started out with the question of why we haven't won the war in Afghanistan. And we've talked about the failure of kinetic wars in general, the cost of war in dollars, and about the waste and corruption. So let's now talk about the human cost. So David, where do we even start? So one place to start, Paul, is just counting the numbers. During our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were 53,252 Americans who came home wounded. So I'll say that number again, 53,252. Of those, there were about 2,000 Americans who lost at least one limb, an arm or a leg, sometimes both. In one case, I know of all four limbs. So those are the physical wounds, the psychological wounds, the post-traumatic stress and the moral injuries and the traumatic brain injuries not counted in those numbers. So altogether, these are the people who we sent to war on our behalf, and we should keep them in our thoughts because many of them still bear the scars and disabilities they incurred. Many of these wounds are lifetime conditions. So so David, you spent a lot of time on the ground with our troops. 
And I'm imagining that you must have seen this kind of human cost of battle up close. Tell us what that has been like. So on one of my many trips to Afghanistan, I spent a few weeks at a place called Forward Operating Base Salerno. It was in the eastern part of the country, which is wild and mountainous and dangerous. And I got to know a doctor there, a surgeon who was a reservist, and he had left his hospital job, his civilian hospital job, back home in order to spend months working in Afghanistan. And there was a forward surgical hospital at this base, and it was often the first place the wounded got to from the battlefield. So one day he and I were talking over coffee when the public address system announced the code for incoming wounded. And the surgeon who just finished his morning run and was still wearing you know, running shoes and shorts sprinted to the hospital with me right behind him. So the hospital there is a, was a large tent structure with several rooms, including an operating room. Uh, all the wars in the floor and the ceiling were white uh, canvas and was air conditioned. So, uh, you know, a pretty regular place with emergency surgical packs hung on the walls and everything really needed for trauma surgery, which is really kind of desperate life-saving work in a place like that. So the wounded soldier, uh, who I think was a special forces soldier, had been brought in on the back of a pickup truck and lifted onto a gurney and rushed inside. And the chief surgeon uh, in white gowns over his running shorts and running shoes, and eight or nine other people crowded around the patient, a surgeon and one or two assistant surgeons and an anesthetist, um, several surgical nurses and trauma specialists. And, and there was a lot going on all at the same time. The patient was getting intravenous drip. I had an oxygen mask on with the nurse squeezing a balloon to help him breathe or bloody dressings dropping to the floor. And it was quiet except for murmurs uh, of the staff. They sliced open his throat for a tracheotomy so he could breathe. At one point they inserted a long needle into his chest cavity to draw out blood and air because the chest cavity was filling with blood and uh, was forcing the lungs to collapse. And there were nurses sort of examining his body for other wounds. And it was crowded enough around the patient. I could barely see what was going on. But my, my impression was that the medical staff there were professional and heroic. And also being wounded is really messy. And I didn't realize that in life-saving trauma medicine, so many people were involved all at once. It was crowded, but everybody knew what to do without getting in each other's way. And so this went on for 15 or 20 minutes. And then suddenly everyone stood back. All the activity stopped. The surgeon took off his face mask. People started drifting away. The gurney was wheeled outside and an orderly started gathering up the bloody bandages and dressings. So they'd lost another one. So from what I understand, the story that you just told could have come from kind of any war uh, really. So what was different about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and your experience of them? So you're right, Paul, these wars were different. And one was the nature of the wounds themselves. So in these wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, we came to know the IED, the improvised explosive device. In Iraq, they were usually buried under a dirt road or disguised in a pile of garbage beside the road. 
and they were often made of cast off artillery shells. So in one case I'm familiar with, there were three 155 millimeter artillery shells lashed together with several gallons of gasoline. When that thing went off, it threw an armored vehicle up into the air. Of all the people riding in that vehicle, there was one survivor. His legs were crushed, he had internal injuries and was badly burned. So in Afghanistan, uh, the IEDs tended to be smaller and cheaper, uh, often just a plastic bucket of fertilizer and motor oil uh, with some nails or glass shards or stones thrown in and a detonator made of two sticks and some wire and a double A battery uh, retrieved from American trash. So very often Americans, including me, would tend to throw away batteries when they got low. And of course, pretty quickly figured out the bad guys were using those to make IEDs. So that practice stopped. But uh, so when you stepped on this thing, that two sticks would mash together, closing an electric circuit and the thing would explode upwards. In Afghanistan, these IEDs were aimed not so much at vehicles as people on foot. And when the US commander in Afghanistan, David Petraeus, decreed that the troops should get out of their vehicles and walk for foot patrols, many more Americans stepped on IEDs. So I just want to quickly describe what happens when someone does step on one of the IEDs. So the blast rips upwards, often shearing off legs and sometimes arms and sometimes genitals. It drives up into the abdominal cavity with stones and nails and filth, puncturing internal organs. And the person would usually have a traumatic brain injury from the blast and loss of blood. So the medical community and the military had to invent a new term for this. And the new term was polytrauma. Unlike past wars where the wounded would have stepped on a mine, say, and lost a foot or a leg, or suffered a gunshot wound or shrapnel from an exploding artillery shell, usually one wound. In the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, a patient would often arrive at a forward surgical hospital with one or two or three or even four limbs blown off, massive internal injuries and a traumatic brain injury. And any one of those in past wars probably would have meant you died on the battlefield. So how did how did the military medicine adapt to this this new reality and this this these new um, these new uh, battles? The professionals in the military medical community have stressed this over and over again that a lot of basic research was done in the eighties and nineties that really paid off when we went to war after two thousand one. So in past wars, many of the people who were wounded on the battlefield died from loss of blood. And the military had decided not to encourage the use of tourniquets because if the tourniquet is left on too long, the limb begins to die. So you strap a tourniquet on someone's thigh to stop bleeding in the lower leg and the lower leg all now is getting no blood and it begins to die. So guys in military medicine said, hey, wait, we can save lives by using tourniquets for short periods of time, stop the bleeding. So if we can get the wounded person to medical care, we're good. So they equipped every person in the military and journalists traveling with them with two easy to use tourniquets. 
you slip on the loop and yank it tight and Velcro it closed. And there was a, a little uh, mechanism you could use to tighten it up. And you could do it with one hand. You just slip it over your arm, yank it tight and strap it down. Um, so the idea was that if you got wounded, uh, you could put on the tourniquet yourself. So with that one thing, many, many, many more of the wounded survived and got to medical care. So that, that was one thing. Combat medics got better gear and better training. And so did the troops. Many of them got what's called a combat life-saving course where they learned elementary battlefield trauma care, like clearing a runway, inserting a breathing tube, even needling the chest, which I just described where you insert a long needle to let out air and blood that's causing a lung, lung to collapse. Perhaps the biggest thing was huge fleets of medevac helicopters and forward surgical hospitals close to the fighting. So somebody who's wounded could be in surgery within 60 minutes. That's the so-called golden hour. And the idea of the golden hour, which is, I don't think has ever been proven or it's just an idea, but the idea is if you can get a wounded person to surgery inside of 60 minutes, his chance of living goes way up. So you had lots of surgical hospitals like the one I described a few minutes ago set up near the fighting. And these hospitals had fresh blood, diagnostics like ultrasound machines, all the things you'd find in a modern hospital. And then medevac aircraft, which were basically flying intensive care units, just like in a big city hospital that took patients from Iraq or Afghanistan to Germany and then on to the United States. So the other thing that I should mention is that the military's medical community made huge strides in inventing new ideas, inventing new surgical techniques, inventing new technology, and some of it was pretty simple. So there were a couple of Navy doctors who were assigned to take care of Marines on the battlefield. And they were so frustrated that they couldn't get out to where the people were being wounded in time. And so <laughs> they built a box out of steel and put it on the back of a truck so they could drive right onto the battlefield and operate on people while small arms fire was pinging off the walls of their steel box. I mean, that's the kind of devotion and, and inventiveness that went into this uh, new ways of treating people on the battlefield. So David, let's follow the patient as the patient comes back home. What is it like for the families and the loved ones who now have to take on this kind of new role that, that they may or may not be prepared for of caretaker? Yeah, so usually badly wounded patients are put into a protective coma and they arrive in the United States that way. So I've seen them loaded onto medevac planes in Afghanistan, and I've watched them come off the planes in Washington at Andrews Air Force Base. But you bring up an important point, Paul, and that is that this is the point where the actions of the wounded soldier or Marine start to matter less, and the family takes on the major role. Too often, here's what happens. A young guy enlists, uh, in the Army or the Marine Corps. Very athletic, played football in high school, a lot of outdoor experience, hunting and camping and fishing. Very active guy, strong and handsome and athletic. 
And he goes into the military and he does well. And he gets one combat deployment under his belt. He comes home, he's a hero and a gal magnet, right? He meets a girl, they fall in love. And just before his second combat deployment, they get married. So they're living in base housing or probably just an apartment just outside of Fort Hood or Camp Lejeune. And now what? He's gone for another eight months or a year and she doesn't know anybody in the military really. So she goes home to her family in let's say Iowa. Of course, she's nervous the whole time he's gone because he's in combat. So 4 a.m. one night, phone rings. It's a sergeant calling from Germany. Says your husband has been badly wounded. He's here in Germany. And if he lives through the night, we'll fly him to Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. And I suggest you get there as fast as you can. I mean, imagine the panic that sets in in this little family in Iowa. So things are in chaos. They finally get her on a plane to Washington, D.C. She gets a taxi to Walter Reed. If she's lucky, she got a call from a military liaison person who can help her arrange all this, but stop it. Maybe not. Maybe she just takes the taxi to the hospital. And now here's her husband, this big, strong guy, and now he's in a coma, his face is all swollen, swollen up, his body is swathed in bandages and tubes and wires, and below the waist, there's nothing, no legs. And, and sometimes the first decision for her, our young wife, is the doctors say, well, you know, he probably won't live. And doctor says, should we pull the plug now? And I mean, this whole thing is an unbelievable shock. And the second shock for many of these young civilians, there's not enough nurses or medical staff for full-time care around the clock. So if he lives, our young wife is now his caregiver for the rest of her life. And she's probably trained as what, a sixth grade teacher. How, how do they do this? I mean, how, how, what's the nature of, of that kind of adapting all of a sudden into a role of caregiver. So Paul, I spent a year embedded in this community and the wounded, the hospitals um, and the family members. I've known a number of family members who've suddenly found themselves in this position. So where do they get the courage, the stamina, the strength day after day, month after month, to be upbeat, to be cheerful, to be encouraging. You know, one mother told me, you do what you have to do. If you dwell on what you've lost, it'll continue to drag you down. So it was actually her son, a paratrooper, whose experience, sadly, is not all that uncommon. He was blown up by an IED in Iraq, suffered deep burns, evacuated off the battlefield, to a forward surgical hospital and then flown to Landstuhl, Germany for more emergency surgery, and then flown on to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, where his mother came rushing to the burn ward. She told me he looked like something out of a horror movie. So like a lot of family members of the wounded, she literally moved in, staying on the hospital campus so she could spend most of the days with him. She learned how to change his dressings, which is a painful procedure that takes hours and hours each day. 
She managed his medications. She wiped his bottom. She washed him. She told me she'd often climb into the shower with him naked to gently wash his private parts and his wounds. And she told me, it does create an intimacy between you, but it's damaging. That's not what an adult wants his mother to be doing. So the caregivers, the wife or the mother or the brother or the father learns to empty the bedpan, master all his medications and what they do and when they need to be taken, what they should be doing, to be his advocate with the medical staff, to master all of the arcana of trauma medicine and recovery. And by the way, handle the family finances, figure out where they're gonna live now, how to afford it, then struggling with the VA to get his medications and his benefits. And sometimes they have small children. I mean, it's a lot to handle. Some of the wounded make new lives for themselves. Tyler Southern is a Marine who was uh, stepped on an IED in Afghanistan. It blew off three of his limbs and uh, his one remaining limb, his left arm was badly damaged. He nearly died several times on his way from that place in Afghanistan to Walter Reed in Washington, DC, where I met him. At one point, the surgeon did what they call a Hail Mary surgery where they slid open the side of his chest and reach in and massage his heart to get it going again. Uh, which is something that usually doesn't work. When I met him uh, about 10 weeks later, he was doing push-ups on his one remaining arm in the amputee gym at Walter Reed. He was the kind of person who, as one of his surgeons told me, he just lights up a room. He was just a happy person. And he and his dad had these t-shirts made that said, uh, combat wounded Marine, some assembly required. That, that was sort of his approach to life. And he's now married and has two kids and you know, life goes on, but not everybody does so well. So pain is a huge problem and it persists and drugs can help and then become a problem. And I came to know the case of a Marine blown up by an IED, eventually had one leg amputated and, um, Pain medication really helped him and then it didn't. And he, it became his demon and he fought his demons and eventually he died of an overdose of fentanyl. There was another case I'm familiar with where a soldier was blown up and badly burned and eventually had a leg amputated. Doctors try to salvage the limbs they can, but sometimes that fails. So he eventually got out of the hospital. He returned home, learned to drive with his prosthetic leg enrolled in college, but then the drugs caught up with him and he dropped out and he disappeared. His family heard he was living on the streets and then he just disappeared. And his mother told me, you know, my son is missing. It's just a heartbreaking story. Well, uh, well, thank you, David, for, for telling these stories, these really, really important stories of the impact and effect uh, on are wounded and uh, and the details of this and it, and and it's even more heartbreaking because these these wars ended so badly and and without kind of a a clean win that that might legitimize the sacrifices of these people and of their families uh, and you know that and the sacrifices that they they continue to make 
um, when the wounded return, as you have, have detailed. So thank you for sharing that, uh, David. Um, so in our, in our next episode, uh, we'll take a look at, at a surprising warfighting commander who turned peacemaker. Uh, we'll also see the hard limits of kinetic force and, and what that means for the future and, and really appreciate the stories that you, you told today. They were really heart-wrenching and uh, thank you again, David. You're welcome. Kinetic War, as seen by war correspondent and journalist David Wood, is a Breaking the Gray production created by Paul Wood and Russ Eisenman. Chris Craig is sound designer. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.